0: The Adams administration went into the White House in 1825 with bold ideas and visions, but by the time they walked out the door, reality had ensured that though the ideas may live on, this administration would not be the one to get credit for the change of course on policies on down the line. While they did make some progress in the realm of foreign relations, the change in focus to Latin America that the incoming Secretary of State Henry Clay had dreamt of for years and was ready to spearhead would ultimately turn out to be one of his greatest disappointments in his time in office. As we'll soon see, some of the problems were with the reality on the ground in Central and South America, but some of the blame must also be laid at the feet of the Secretary himself. Hello and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Now that we spent last episode taking a look at how the various republics in Latin America had achieved their independence from Spain and Portugal by the time Henry Clay came to office in 1825, we're ready to delve into the Adams administration and its policies towards the region. By the time Henry Clay took up the reins at the State Department, though independence had been achieved by many of the colonies in Spanish America as well as Brazil, what shape their independent governments would take was still in question for many of them. Indeed, one of the more unstable governments lay directly south and west of the United States in 1825. As noted last episode, Mexico, shortly after achieving independence, implemented an imperial government, the only such in Spanish America, with General Augustin de Iturbide assuming the mantle of Emperor of Mexico by taking an oath of office before Congress on May 21, 1822 the I's reign would not last through an entire year before political turmoil convinced him to abdicate his throne and go into exile, though not before opposition to his government led the portion of Central America between modern-day Mexico and Panama to secede from the Mexican Empire to form the Federal Republic of Central America. Mexico would then have a provisional government for a time before the first Mexican Republic was established on November 1, 1824. Thus, the minister appointed by the Adams administration, which would be the first, in fact, sent to Mexico, would be facing a still relatively new government, one with continued political struggles, as noted by Rodriguez Otoñez. Part of the problem with Yoturbide came from a power struggle with the Mexican Congress, but even after his abdication. Quote, though the Constitution of 1824 provided for a strong Congress and a weak executive, the Presidents of Mexico repeatedly attempted to impose their will upon the nation. Into this mix was thrown Joel R. Poinsett of South Carolina in the role of U.S. Minister to Mexico. Though, as it was noted in episode 38, Clay had advocated for our own General Harrison to receive the appointment, but he was overruled by President Adams. Long-time listeners with an acute ear may find the name Poinsett sounding familiar. He was mentioned in episode 15, the debate between Van Buren and Harrison, regarding his role at the time, which was Secretary of War in the Van Buren administration. Even at this point in his career, though, Poinsett was considered to be rather accomplished. He had served as a special agent to Chile and the United Provinces of the Rio de la Plata at the beginning of the Madison administration, in fact being notable as the first agent of a foreign government to arrive in Chile. Following his return to the States, he served for a couple of years in the South Carolina House of Representatives before moving on to the U.S. House of Representatives, which is where he could be found on the eve of the Adams administration. Beyond his previous diplomatic experience, Adams' decision to appoint Poinsett came partially out of his desire for establishing unity between the various factions of the Democratic Republican Party as Poinsett had voted for Andrew Jackson when the election was thrown into the House. Clay's instructions to Poinsett of March 26, 1825, not only provide information about U.S. interaction with Mexico to date, but with some of the other major players in Latin America as well. In the letter, Clay notes that, though there may be criticism of the United States for not immediately recognizing the independence of other former Spanish colonies, quote, there is not the slightest pretext for such a suggestion in relation to Mexico, for within a little more than a year after its independence was proclaimed, The United States hastened to acknowledge it. In his lengthy defense of the U.S. government's policy towards recognizing Latin American republics, Clay asserts that, quote, The people and the government of the United States have throughout all the stages of the struggle between Spain and her former colonies cherished the warmest feelings and the strongest sympathies towards the latter. It seems as if Clay wanted to use the relationship with Mexico as an entree into wider Latin American circles. At the very least, Clay urges the new minister to Mexico to use that sentiment to ensure that European governments, in particular Britain, did not enjoy in quote commerce and navigation with Mexico any favors or privileges which shall not be equally extended to us. In this, the administration would not be successful as the new republics would see a considerable advantage to British recognition that would prompt many of them to accord that nation quote preferential treatment. Besides the extension of free trade principles, or, as it was called at the time, reciprocity to commercial relations between the two nations, Poinsett was also instructed to remind the Mexican government of the principle of the Monroe Doctrine, and that not only did the U.S. consider the Western Hemisphere closed for expanded European colonization, but also that, quote, we, the Adams administration, should regard as dangerous to our peace and safety any attempt on their, i.e., Europeans' part To extend their system to any portion of the hemisphere, the political systems of the two continents are essentially different. Basically, the U.S. didn't want European governments to entangle the new Latin American republics in alliances that might lead to a replay of the Napoleonic Wars on the Western Hemisphere. The final key part of Poinsett's mission was to seek a resolution to the border issue, and in that resolution, possibly acquiring more territory for the U.S., Most Americans, Clay included in that number, in one of the few instances in which he and Andrew Jackson actually agreed, felt that Texas had in fact already been acquired by the U.S. by the Louisiana Purchase. But when the Adams-Ones Treaty was signed in 1819, the boundary had been defined as where the present-day boundary of Louisiana and Texas is, then up the Red River, and ultimately westward. Some Southerners and Westerners in the U.S. criticized then-Secretary of State Adams for giving away Texas, and Clay, in succeeding Adams at State, saw this as an opportunity to correct the mistake and reacquire Texas for the U.S. However, it does seem that he did not think too highly of the new Mexican government, perhaps thinking that, being new to the game, they might be easily persuadable. Or, perhaps, because of the financial issues that the country was facing, Clay instructed Poinsett that, as the present boundary between Texas and Louisiana was too close to New Orleans for comfort, quote, "...perhaps the Mexican government may not be unwilling to establish that border of the Rio Brazos de Dios, or the Rio Colorado, or the Snow Mountains, or the Rio del Norte, in lieu of it." Basically, Poinsett should just waltz into Mexico and ask for as much land as they were willing to give because it never tees anyone off to have someone walk into their home and start demanding things. Despite the instability in the Mexican government, it's hard to imagine that anyone would have had much success with going into Mexico and asking for land to just be handed over, but Poinsett was probably one of the worst people to send to make such a demand. He hadn't even settled in good in Mexico City before he started inserting himself into the already turbulent Mexican politics by working with Mexican business associates to establish a rival Masonic order distinct from the already existing one that was frequented by, quote, wealthy landowners, and clergymen. These orders would develop into political factions, and Poinsett was pointed to as the impetus for this growing discord, so much so that the state legislature of Veracruz called for his ouster as U.S. Minister to Mexico. Likewise, Clay recommended that Adams remove him from the post, but Adams demurred, asserting that he would only remove Poinsett if the Mexican government called for it. Thus, Poinsett remained in place for the remainder of the Adams administration, with the Mexican government finally calling for Poinsett's removal in October 1829 after Old Hickory took up residence at the executive mansion. To be fair, the deteriorating relations between the U.S. and Mexico cannot solely be blamed on Poinsett. Indeed, the British were working to draw closer to Mexico at the expense of the United States. As mentioned earlier, the Mexican government was facing financial difficulties and the British succeeded in strengthening their ties to Mexico by eagerly offering up loans to prop up the government. As noted by British Foreign Minister George Canning, this was an intentional challenge to the United States and the Monroe Doctrine. As Canning wrote in a letter to an associate on January 8, 1825, quote, the great danger of the time, a danger which the policy of the European system would have fostered, was a division of the world into European and American, Republican and monarchical, a league of worn-out governments on the one hand, and of youthful and stirring nations with the United States at their head on the other. We slip in between and plant ourselves in Mexico. The United States have gotten the start of us in vain, and we link once more America to Europe. Six months more, and the mischief would have been done. The British diplomatic charge had already been at work in Mexico City to secure a favorable commercial treaty between the two nations for months before Poinsett's arrival and was able to conclude the deal five years before the U.S. and Mexico would sign a commercial treaty. This wedge being driven between the United States and Mexico did not mean, however, that other attempts were not being made to strengthen ties between the American states. Among the many other controversial items in Adams' 1825 State of the Union address was an announcement that the U.S. had accepted an invitation to a Congress of Independent Nations in the Western Hemisphere to be held in Panama the following year. The Panama Congress, as it was later dubbed, was the brainchild of the liberator, Simon Bolivar, who listeners to this program will remember from Episodes 25 and 26 and his interactions with our own William Henry Harrison. This was still in the future at this point, though. At this point in history, Bolivar was focused on the Panama Congress as, quote, an effort to initiate a policy of cooperation and amicable discourse among the American nations. It was the first time a Pan-American conference had been organized, though Henry Clay himself had urged cooperation among the nations of the Western Hemisphere for some time. It should be noted, though, for all the impact that this would have on American politics, Bolivar did not actually want the United States invited. He worried that the U.S. would attempt to dominate the conference and, by extension, Latin America. However, he was overruled in this by the vice president of Gran Colombia, Francisco de Paula Santander, who sent the invitation on to the U.S. Thus, Secretary Clay had been working since the spring within the administration and in correspondence with the Colombian and Mexican foreign ministers to make arrangements for the meeting, or, to be more precise, for the invitation to the meeting. As both Latin American nations were highly committed to the success of the Congress, they didn't want to extend an invitation to the U.S. only to have it rejected. However, the policy of the Adams administration, like that of the previous Monroe administration, was one of neutrality, or at least not active engagement, in the war between the self-declared republics and Spain, which was still at this point seeking to reclaim its former colonies. Once assurances had been given that the U.S. would not have to abandon its neutral stance and that the administration would accept the invitation, it was sent on, and Adams accepted. The acceptance of the invitation, though, would be described as, quote, the first major struggle between the administration and the Jackson Party. We'll talk more about this struggle in the next episode as we discuss the lead-up to the election of 1828, but it would take months of deliberations and a standoff between Henry Clay and John Randolph of Roanoke on the dueling ground before the nominations of U.S. Minister to Columbia Richard C. Anderson and John Sargent of Pennsylvania as the U.S. representatives to the Panama Congress were confirmed by the Senate on March 14th. Then the battle devolved to the House, where an appropriation was necessary before the mission could actually head to Panama. This took until May 4th to resolve, but finally the mission to the Panama Congress was green lighted. American participation in this conference, however, was not to be. The Panama Congress began on June 22, 1826, with the nations of Gran Colombia, the Federal Republic of Central America, Mexico, and Peru represented. Both Argentina and Brazil refused their invitations, while Chile was busy dealing with internal struggles, and Bolivia's representatives were too late to join, as were those of the United States, which we'll get back to in a minute. The proceedings, which had been planned to last two months, in fact, were over in three weeks. Part of the problem came from distrust of the motives of organizing the conference, while others were just ready to get away from, quote, the pestilential climate of, quote, Panama's sweltering capital. Only Colombia would actually ratify the initiatives that were passed by the Congress, and thus Bolivar's dream of a League of American Nations would die a pitiful death. The British, however, would benefit from this meeting, as the observers sent by the British government would use the opportunity to negotiate commercial contracts with the government representatives in attendance. So where were the American representatives? Well, Richard Anderson had departed from Bogota to travel to the conference, but ended up developing a tropical fever and died en route at Cartagena on July 24th, never having even left Gran Colombia. John Sargent, meanwhile, refused to go to Panama during the, quote, sickly season. Considering the fate of his associate, one can understand his hesitation, and offered to resign his commission, but Clay refused. Given how difficult it had been to get them confirmed in the first place, he didn't want to go through that process again. Once they learned of Anderson's fate, former President Monroe was approached as serving as the second minister during the planned reconvening of the Congress in Tacabaya, Mexico, but Monroe declined. Thus, the administration turned to Joel Poinsett, who agreed to serve, but, as Clay had feared, the confirmation of the appointment was delayed for six weeks after Congress reconvened in December and was only approved in January 1827. By that point, Sargent had already arrived in Mexico to be in place to travel to Tacabaya, However, after six months of waiting, it became apparent to everyone that the meeting was not going to take place, and Sargent turned right back around and went home. All of the political maneuvering had been for naught, and the U.S. had been too late to prevent the British from continuing to infiltrate themselves into Latin American affairs. The administration had succeeded in an early win by concluding a claims convention with Columbia in March 1825, The negotiations had already been underway under the previous administration, but it settled losses in four privateering seizures of American vessels during the Wars of Independence and was looked at as a positive sign for good relations between the two nations. However, the United States soon found itself having to assert itself into Latin American affairs, quote, to prevent altogether any invasion of Cuba, which the administration deemed a, quote, rash or premature enterprise and urged its ministers to the Panama Congress to, quote, without reserve explicitly state that the United States have too much at stake in the fortunes of Cuba to allow them to see with indifference a war of invasion prosecuted in a desolating manner or to see employed in the purposes of such a war one race of the inhabitants combating against another upon principles and with motives that must inevitably lead if not to the extermination of one party or the other to the most shocking excesses. At the time, both Mexico and Colombia were threatening to invade and take control of Cuba, which, along with Puerto Rico, remained under Spanish control. Cuba and Puerto Rico had become pawns being used by both the British and the U.S. to entice Spain to come to an agreement to end, once and for all, its attempts to reclaim its former colonies in Latin America. Both governments made offers, both directly and through other European governments, that they would be willing to guarantee continued Spanish control over those islands if they would come to a peace agreement. However, as Spain demurred and Spanish-British relations took a downturn, the British began plotting in 1827 to incite a rebellion in Cuba and then seize the island in the midst of the chaos. When word arrived in Washington of the plot, Clay sent former Representative Daniel P. Cook of Illinois on, quote, a confidential diplomatic junket to Cuba in order to see whether Cuba could defend itself against the British invasion or if the U.S. would need to directly intervene. Cook's mission would ultimately be a failure, as he would contract dysentery in Cuba and die while en route back to Washington without having submitted the first report. However, the British would ultimately pass on the invasion plan, and Cuba would remain in Spanish hands. In an ironic twist of fate, as noted by Robert Remini, quote, Clay, who had long championed the liberation of Latin America, was himself largely responsible for delaying the independence of Cuba. The greatest threat to U.S.-Colombian relations, however, would ultimately prove to be with the instability within Colombia itself. Gran Colombia had been established, at Bolívar's urging, as a union between what had been New Granada and Venezuela, with modern-day Ecuador being added as a third department upon its liberation from Spanish control though there was much reluctance on both sides to this plan. The mutual admiration for Bolivar by the new Granadan and Venezuelan representatives to the Congress at Angostura had led them to approve the union on December 17, 1819, and to establish a new government, with Bolivar elected as the president, which would be more of a titular role, as he did not intend to take an active role in the government, as he would be off continuing his wars of independence in other parts of Spanish America. More important would be the vice presidencies. Not only would there be a vice president of Gran Colombia, who would be the de facto head of government, but there would also be a vice president solely responsible for Venezuela. The previously mentioned Santander was chosen for the former post and would move to assert more centralized control for the new government based in Bogota, but his efforts would be resisted by the Venezuelans. The resistance movement against the Colombian government was led by one of Bolivar's generals, Jose Antonio Paez, who, after Bolivar rejected Paez's request that he return to Venezuela and crown himself king, took matters into his own hands and led a coup in 1826 to assert Venezuela's independence from the government in Bogotá. Bolivar, who had been in Lima, Peru at the time that word reached him of Piez's revolt, along with pleas from Santander requesting his return in order to restore order, realized that the time had come for him to take a more active hand in the affairs of Gran Colombia. Thus, he began his return on September 3rd, and as he made his way through Ecuador to Bogota, slowly began to realize the necessity of claiming the title of dictator that had been suggested to him by so many, but rejected time and again. His official presidency had been annulled the year prior, as he had resigned from the post, but the Congress refused his resignation and instead reaffirmed his presidency, but as he had not been back to Bogota since, he had not taken another oath of office. Bolivar's return seemed like the perfect opportunity to acquire new powers to deal both with the threat of Paez and to get the government moving again. These dictatorial powers, however, threatened Santander's authority and thus added fuel to potential conflict between the two. However, Bolivar was able to work his magic and ultimately brought both Santander and Paez back into the fold, ending the Venezuelan revolt with an amnesty, while at the same time acquiring the dictatorial powers that he now wanted by the beginning of 1827. The old magic and the balancing act, however, were both wearing thin, and the United States was growing concerned about Bolivar's consolidation of power. In what Bolivar saw as a step towards correcting the deficiencies in the previous government that had, in Bolivar's words, quote, reduced the country to a Satan's palace, ablaze in every corner, and ultimately ensuring the power will be returned to the people rather than government bureaucrats. People like Henry Clay and the new U.S. Minister to Columbia, William Henry Harrison, saw despotism and tyranny. We've already discussed Harrison's ministry and letter to Bolivar at length. So I'll include links to those episodes on the show notes page for this episode so that we're not covering old ground. However, I will note that Clay sent his own letter to Bolivar on October 27, 1828, in which he asserted that, quote, We, the United States had fondly cherished and still indulged the hope that South America would add a new triumph to the cause of human liberty and that Providence would bless her as he had her northern sister with the genius of some great and virtuous man to conduct her securely through all her trials. We had even flattered ourselves that we beheld that genius in Your Excellency, I cannot allow myself to believe that your excellency will abandon the bright and glorious path which lies plainly before you, for the bloody road passing over the liberties of the human race, on which the vulgar crowd of tyrants and military despots have so often trodden. I will not doubt that your excellency will, preferring the true glory of our immortal Washington to the ignoble fame of the destroyers of liberty you have formed the patriotic resolution of ultimately placing the freedom of Columbia upon a firm and sure foundation. That your efforts to that end may be crowned with complete success, I most fervently pray. At least Harrison would be able to argue that he had made his appeal to Bolivar as a private citizen, but this was the Secretary of State admonishing the leader of a foreign nation. Naturally, Bolivar did not take too kindly to these dressings down and turned to none other than the British chargé in Bogota and said that quote the United States seems destined by providence to plague America with torments in the name of freedom is this whole british thing sounding like a pattern yet yet again the british benefited from the souring of relations between the US and a latin american republic and Bolivar's mind would turn ever more towards the adoption of a British style of government for Venezuela with an enlightened despotism of some sort not out of the question. Troubles for the U.S. and the region would not stop in Colombia, however. As if the region needed any more turmoil, war began between Brazil and the United Provinces of the Rio de la Plata in 1825. As was the foreign policy of the time, the United States declared itself neutral in the conflict. And, as was the norm of the time, the rights of neutrality were violated by at least one party in the conflict. In this instance, the problem centered first with Brazil. Brazilian Admiral Lobo declared a blockade at the mouth of the Rio de la Plata, despite the U.S. asserting that the blockade was only legal for the river above the position of the Brazilian squadron. This standoff, however paled in comparison to the back and forth that would come from Lobo's requirement in January 1826 that vessels leaving Brazil with goods of foreign production give a bond that they would not enter enemy ports, in this case Argentinian ports. The U.S. charge at Rio de Janeiro, Condi Roger, protested to the Brazilian government, and wrote to Clay requesting that he be given instructions to call for a break in diplomatic relations between the two nations should Brazil not recognize the rights of the U.S., asserting that, quote, now is the moment to make our nation respected by this. Now is the moment to make this government feel the influence which we are destined to maintain in the hemisphere of liberty." While Clay commended Roger's, quote, zealous exertions, he also cautioned against pushing too hard to break relations as U.S. trade with Brazil was considered to be vitally important. However, the warning came too late as Roger took the initiative in March 1827 and demanded his passports from the Brazilian government to return to the U.S. Clay would ultimately work with the Brazilian diplomat stationed in Washington to smooth over the situation, explaining that Roger had taken his action, quote, without orders, and sending instructions to William Tudor, who was U.S. consul in Lima, to make his way to Rio to take over Roger's post. Tudor would ultimately negotiate a claims agreement with the Brazilian government signed in the spring of 1829 as the Adams administration gave way to the incoming Jackson administration. Meanwhile, the Argentinian government would begin to violate U.S. neutrality as part of their war effort against Brazil. The government in Buenos Aires issued a set of secret instructions in mid-1827 in which they declared a blockade of the entire Brazilian coast and gave authorization to privateers to seize any vessels that violated the blockade. Naturally, with it being a secret, there would be vessels to violate the blockade, including the Ruth, a brig from Philadelphia. 1827 was not a good year for the Ruth as they were first captured by the Brazilian Navy who ultimately released her only to have an Argentinian privateer seize her and her cargo. The case would ultimately go to court with a decision coming down in November 1828 that the captured cargo was to be released and damages paid. In a reversal of fortune from the prior year, not only did they get restitution from the Argentinians, but the Brazilian government also agreed to pay damages for its seizure of the Ruth. Thus, as the Adams administration exited, relations were marginally improved with those two nations as their war came to an end, though it should be noted that Britain continued to exert a considerable influence over the government in Buenos Aires, while there was a more noticeable shift in Brazil in favor of relations with the United States, culminating with the conclusion of the treaty at the end of 1828. From the border of Texas to Cape Horn, the U.S. and Britain competed for influence with Britain appearing at the end of the Adams administration to have the upper hand. Now you may have noticed that in the last episode as well as the present one, as we've been going up and down the western hemisphere, in now we have not discussed Haiti. While being distinct from the other countries that we have discussed, as it was a former French colony rather than having been a Spanish or Portuguese possession, It did play a key role in the wars of Latin American independence, as well as U.S. foreign policy in the Western Hemisphere. So I'd like to take a look at it before we wrap up things for today. Haiti was an independent republic, at least in name, and had been the second nation in the Western Hemisphere following the U.S. to declare its independence back in 1804, whereas the administration of John Adams had, in 1798, offered support to the rebels led by Toussaint L'Ouverture, When Jefferson assumed the presidency in 1801, he offered his support to Napoleon for France to recapture what had been the French colony of Saint-Domingue. Though the failure of Napoleon's forces to retake the colony was part of the impetus towards Napoleon's decision to sell the Louisiana Purchase to the United States, arguably Jefferson's greatest achievement as president, Jefferson could not bring himself to recognize a nation founded by rebelling enslaved peoples. Due to Haiti's relations with Great Britain, Here we go again with the British. An embargo was declared by the U.S. on the island nation in 1807. Ultimately, despite the United States shunning Haiti and denying it recognition, Haiti would come to play a key role in the wars of Latin American independence when it provided aid to Simon Bolivar to carry forward his quest in 1816, the same year in which its president, Alexander Pétion drafted a new constitution for the nation which offered Haitian citizenship to quote all Africans and Indians and those of their blood born in the colonies or in foreign countries who come to reside in the republic. Haiti would struggle to achieve a state of stability though as the nation remained split in two between the kingdom of Haiti in the north and the republic of Haiti in the south for over a decade before the two reunified. While the U.S. would prove to be one of the nation's largest trading partners, accounting for over 40% of the value of Haitian exports, according to figures from 1823, the United States government had still not established diplomatic relations with Haiti. The question of recognition of Haiti would linger until John Quincy Adams came to inhabit the White House in 1825. And discussion did occur within the administration, with Secretary of State Clay expressing his willingness to recognize the former colony as independent. However, at this point, Adams decided to defer the question further, claiming that French interference in Haitian affairs prevented his recognizing the Haitian government as truly independent. There is some truth to the criticism, as in 1826, the Haitian government agreed under pressure to quote the heavy indemnity claims of the French of 150 million gold francs to compensate French plantation owners that had lost their property including freed enslaved peoples, in return for French recognition of Haitian independence. As this total was 10 times the nation's annual revenue, the debt would prove impossible to pay and would give the French considerable influence over Haiti while crippling the ability of that nation's government for building an infrastructure, both governmental and physical, to build a stable society. Haiti would prove to be yet another missed opportunity for the United States, Had it acted more quickly to recognize Haiti and establish stronger relations, it may have helped it to not have to rely upon French recognition that ultimately made a bad situation even worse. Under the Adams administration, the U.S. allowed prejudice and fears of American slave owners to overrule the national interest as expressed by the Monroe Doctrine, not just in Haiti, but also in Cuba. While an inflated sense of American exceptionalism hindered relations in Mexico and Colombia, and even threatened a growing relationship with Brazil. Clay biographer Robert Rimini sums it up when he states that, quote, As Secretary of State, Henry Clay was a great disappointment to both himself and his friends. He was a statesman of enormous talent who had bold, exciting ideas that might have inaugurated a splendid new chapter in foreign relations, especially with Latin America. However, he proved unable to cope with increasing problems, both foreign and domestic, and thus the administration with far-reaching plans ultimately found itself always two steps behind its competitors which would ultimately lead to its downfall in the election of 1828. Next time, we'll wrap up Clay's tenure at State and the Adams administration as a whole and see how Clay responds to the incoming administration in an episode I'd like to call The Jacksonians' Strike Back. Before we part ways, though, a couple of items of business to share. First, I'd like to wish hearty congratulations to Melissa, who is the winner of our drawing for the $15 gift card to Powell's Books. Here's hoping that it brings you much joy as you continue your reading journey. Thank you so much to all who took the time to complete the survey and provide feedback. It will be very beneficial as we move forward with year two of my podcasting adventure. That being said, as I have been podcasting for over a year now and managing to release a new episode either here or on presidencies every week since then, 59 total with this one, I've decided to take a little breather so that I can catch my breath and try to get a couple of episodes ahead of schedule just in case something should happen to throw me off schedule as has happened a couple of times already this year. I'll still be going with presidencies during this time as I'm already planning on taking a breather from it at the end of the Washington series, but it'll be about a month before another episode of the Harrison podcast is released. Fear not though, we've got great things ahead so I'll look forward to being back with you in about a month to continue our journey through the life of Clay and wrap it up so that we can focus back in on General Harrison. As always, special thanks to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. I couldn't do what I do without Andrew. So if you, like me, could use Andrew's Able Audio Editing Assistance on your podcast, Our Next Audio Project, please reach out to him at Andrew at Foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot As for me, please send any questions or comments about this episode or the podcast in general to Harrison Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or my handle on Facebook or Twitter is Harrison Podcast. again, all one word. Source information for this episode, and as you can imagine, it is rather lengthy for all the material we covered in this episode, can be found at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com. Thank you so very much for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time.